for our acts The sea can be deep for our diving Hope comes and stops us in our tracks Bravely we prove in our striving Trudging together each day Where there's a will, there's a way Hello everyone and welcome to Raw Recovery with Dion Miller I'm your host, Dion Miller, and today our special guest is me. <laughs> no, it's probably not as exciting, but um, I have asked, a, I've had a lot of people ask me um, to tell my story, um, and they ask why I don't, and I'm like, well, I, don't know, I just hadn't really thought of it. So here we are. Um, so they will not be, uh, somebody asked me questions or anything like that, but I hope that um, that my story does help other people out, um, but uh, let's get started. So, I grew up in a place called Kaysville, Utah, and I grew up with a Mormon background, even though I don't remember much of my religious upbringing. I would have to say that the thing I remember most about church was learning my primary colors. That was about it. So I didn't have, you know, even though my parents and my grandparents tried to influence us with um, God in early in our lives, my parents weren't very religious themselves. And uh, once we moved to Colorado, um, going to church kind of stopped. So um, I don't think my parents were too much into it. But um, I bring up Utah because things really started for me there. And uh, before I continue on with my very first drink, I always like to let people know that um, you're going to have to remember that, number one, this was the 70s. <laughs> and things were a lot different then. And I'm going to be talking about some things, and my parents are going to come up. I want you to know that people change and that I get along great with my parents, well, as well as any other kid can. So my first drink... Um, I was uh, either seven or eight years old, and we were coming home from uh, Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, my grandparents always had Thanksgiving down in Salt Lake City, and um, you know, being Mormon, you know, there were about 500 million people there, and probably related to them all. So the uh, the thing, okay, so we were riding on the way back home, and I was extremely thirsty. There's this bottle that was rolling below my feet. And I picked it up. I'm like, Mom, can I have a drink of this? And, you know, they both snicker and they say, yeah, you can. And I took a drink of it and it burned my throat and it stunk and it was horrible. And I was out about 15 minutes later. So that was my first drink. Um, and I remember it. I don't remember what it did to me. But, you know, they say talk about your first drink. So there it is. So we moved to uh, we moved to Colorado when I was nine, 1979, and things were a lot different in Colorado. Uh, people were different. Uh, your soccer wasn't very good. <laughs> we play a lot of soccer and basketball in Utah. So I grew up playing uh, a lot of soccer, but I had always been a kid who didn't have very many friends. 
um, I was skinny and small um, than my class because I was usually a year behind them. My birthday's in September. So um, when I was in Utah, I was the oldest one, but when I came here, I was the youngest one. I don't know how that worked, but it did. So, or maybe I was just the youngest one. Doesn't matter, I was always the youngest in my class. So, and I got picked on a lot. Um, also, when while I was growing up, um, there were a lot of things that happened to me in the beginning. Um, and I attribute this all to what we call trauma in our lives. Um, when I was when I was younger, I was six years old. Um, I had a lazy eye, and um, that means that I had an eye. If you looked at me, uh, my right eye would start going to the side and kind of look like it was just wandering off somewhere else. So I was required to wear a patch. That was their that was their thing over my over the good eye, so that it strengthens your right eye. And I always I I could always remember that I would have to remind my parents. Um, which I it was and that was I always found that disheartening when I was a kid so um, so I was a pirate growing up um, I would move on and and I got into uh, school and I had a speech impediment I couldn't say my s's so my brother Scott I would say not and my uh, Mother took me to the doctor and um, they uh, proceeded to let her know that I was mentally retarded and I would and I was put into classes for that. And it turns out I just had a speech impediment, couldn't say my asses. <laughs> so I just so I started seeing a speech therapist and, and we got that taken care of. Um, I would say probably the biggest thing that I got picked picked on about though was my bedwetting. Um, I wet the bed until I was 11 years old, um, and I'm not going to go deep into that story. Um, but my name is Dion, and it rhymes with peon. And my last name at the time was Bates. So is would you pee on Dion Master Bates? And this just made me not like you guys even more. And I started to uh, uh, go into myself. And by the time I was in junior high, I rarely spoke to... I had some friends, but otherwise I spent most of my time alone. Um, when I was 15, I was uh, in ninth grade at the time. I told you I was one of the younger ones. Is it older or younger? I can't remember. I know I was in ninth grade. So I must have been younger man when you get when you're almost 50 it's hard to remember all of this anything back on it no I was 13 and I had some people that invited me to uh, go over to somebody else's house and they had gotten a hold of some beer and uh, I went with them you know because you know just because you know yeah remember I was still a kid so even though I didn't understand the fact that I didn't really find it fair the way people treated me I was a kid and I still wanted to be popular so I went with them and found the greatest gift I could ever find alcohol I started drinking and um, I remember my mom picking me up and I was trash and she never knew which always can confused me but I know I when I got older I figured out why um, because she was drunk 
So it was probably kind of hard for her to tell. But what happened to me during that time is what really matters. I suddenly became a different person. I was popular. Suddenly I had friends. Uh, granted, they weren't they weren't true friends, but that you know how it is when you're a kid. And my personality changed and I became a different person. So much of a different person that by the time I was 15, my parents would lock me up in a place called Mount Airy Psychiatric Center for my anger. Um, my mom had just sobered up. Um, I was 15. She had just gotten out of uh, she had just gotten out of treatment and started making me go to Alateen, which is for teenagers whose parents are alcoholic. Um, but she also knew that I already had a predisposition for for uh, alcohol, and I hated my mother for doing this. She didn't make any of the other kids go, you know, but. I would start going to AA meetings with her down at the Dragon's Den. Um, if there was an Alateen meeting, I'd go across the street to the church, go to the Alateen meeting. Now, granted, I didn't want to be there, but this would set me up to stay away from harder drugs as I got older, like heroin and cocaine and crack. Though I did have a little stint with heroin, with, heroin, with cocaine at one point. I never really got too much into the harder drugs except for mushrooms, um, which weren't always available. So that wasn't something. But if I could get them, I would grab hold of them. So um, by the time I was 15, uh, my drinking had, got, had already gotten out of control. Um, the summer before that happened, I called the summer of Jim Beam. And that is because my brothers and I had met up with some people that came that were there from Texas that were there for the summer. And their dad was a police officer who had confiscated a bunch of Jim Beam. The way I saw it was this. He stole it from somebody, so I'm going to steal it from him. And I did. We did. And that was the summer of Jim Beam. <laughs> um... My my whole personality changed from becoming from being a meek, quiet person. I was now this boisterous, outgoing, do whatever the hell I want to. And I would live my life that way for a long time. Um, so by the time I was 15, I was I was locked up. Um, actually, yeah, I was just turning 15. I believe I turned 50 in Mount Airy Psychiatric Center. Um and from there, I would go to court for the next two years. I would go to court 32 times. Um, and a lot of different things would happen during that. I never once went on parole, was never on probation. But I would never spend, from there, I would never spend any considerable amount of time living with my parents. Um, until one day, uh, I went to court. And they asked me, you know, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Bates, why do you keep going? Uh, why do you keep going by Bates? And I said, well, that's my last name. And uh, Commissioner Allen, we got to know each other very well. I was in her courtroom a lot. Um, said, no, your last name is Miller. And uh, you need to go by that. And I said, well, I'd like to change my name. And I, she told me, well, once you are not... 
a um, once you are not under my direction, you can go ahead and change it. Um, and I didn't really realize, and I don't know if my parents did or not, but it was something that affected me. And I realized that I was a ward of the state. And that made me very, very angry. Um, and it hurt a lot because I had been pushed away all my life. And I had never really felt accepted anywhere, um, including my family. Now, that isn't on my family. I take responsibility for everything that I did. And um, I actually have very good relationships with most people in my family now. Um, but that took time. So this hurt. And I decided, well, I'm going to get back at them. And I divorced my parents at 16. 16 and a half, I got my first apartment. And Dion was off to the races. Okay, Because there was nobody left holding me back. I could literally do whatever the hell I wanted. So we partied. In fact, I remember my first apartment was off Hampton in Cherokee, right behind the uh, discount tire there. Um, and what's funny is later on in life, I would uh, I would end up uh, uh, managing those apartments <laughs> for about two months. I'm laughing at it because I wasn't a very good manager. I mostly... Uh, stole rent money and broke into people's apartments to get food. Um, so I am not proud of, but that is a life of an alcoholic. So we're going to fast forward to 18. At this time, by this time, I had pretty much, you know, burned every single bridge. Um, that includes a counselor of mine um, that let me stay with her. Uh, she was my counselor at Gemini Shelter, um, one of the places uh, that I stayed at. From Gemini Shelter, I went to a place called Adolescent Family Institute of Colorado. Um, and um, I tried, when they put me there, I tried to run the first night that I was there. And they caught me and put a shirt on me that said, property of AFIC, da-da-da-da-da. But something they didn't know about me was that I knew how to work the system and that I could be a very patient person. And I would eventually run from there, but I had some plans to run and I had it set up. But then they said, hey, Dion, we're going to go white river rafting. And I wanted to go do that. So I figured I'd wait. <laughs> but it turned out very well for me because our parents had to supply sleeping bags and tents and stuff for us to go on this trip. Well, that worked out to my advantage. And on July 4th, I took another guy with me. I convinced him to run and we took off. Um, we uh, threw our stuff out the uh, bathroom window. Then when it came to chores, uh, we ran over the barbed wire fence. I threw a blanket over it. We crossed on over, grabbed the blanket, and they didn't know I was gone for two and a half hours. I will get back to that story later on and because something happened later on. Now, by the time I turned 18, actually, I was, I was just coming up on 19. Um, it, well, it was March 16th. Um, March 15th, 1989. I, uh, so I would have been 15. Ages don't matter. I'm going to quit doing that to you guys. Um, 
they're, it's hard to describe it. So I was sleeping wherever I could at the time and all my friends were tired of seeing me around. And they told me, Dion, you need to go down and sleep in the shelter because we're not doing this with you anymore. And this was my friend, uh, Steve. His name's Steve Smedley. And, uh, and I hope he's listening because he saved my fucking life that day. Um, I didn't have any money to get down there. And so Steve took me to the bus stop, gave me five bucks and was like, here, you need to go, man. So I was headed downtown, which I had just done a stint, um, for a few months, uh, being homeless downtown and I was not looking forward to going back and as I was headed to um, Samaritan shelter and I didn't know this at the time but I would have never gotten to bed that night and this was the middle of March and it was cold and I was walking uh, towards I was walking towards Samaritan shelter I remember thinking to myself Dion you cannot continue doing this to yourself and tomorrow you need to go and you need to find help no matter what happens tonight and I hadn't had a drop of alcohol that day but for the grace of God that was odd there was this guy in front of me and he was walking in through this door and he saw me looking at him and he invites me in he says hey you okay there man why don't you come on in and talk for a while and I walked in and followed behind him and I'm not sure why I did probably because of my alcoholic mind I probably thought I was getting some alcohol out of this or something to make me feel better turns out that he was carrying a six six pack of coke coca-cola and I walk in and I look to the right and I see the AA symbol standing right there in front of my face and I knew at that time God had me he said you know, why don't you sit down and um, hit this meeting with us? They had five meetings a day there at the Phoenix Concept. Uh, the Phoenix Concept is still around. It doesn't run the same way. And I was one of the original members that went through the Phoenix Concept. From that day forward, I would live there for almost a year. And my life would change. And I had somebody in my life, my girlfriend at the time, her name was Shannon. Yes, it's the same Shannon that hangs out with me today. <laughs> so we'll get to that part of the story too. Um, and I would proceed, I would proceed, I would proceed to be in the Phoenix concept for a year. And I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of speed things up here because otherwise this podcast is going to be about an hour and a half because I have a very long story. <laughs> Um, and I stayed sober for 12 years. Um, I was part of a youth team called the West Side Drug for Youth Team. During those two years, I would get married twice and have two children. Uh, when my daughter was a little bit over a year old, I had a relapse. Now I was 12 years sober when that happened. Now, a lot of people ask me, what happened? Why did you relapse? Because I had very good sobriety. And I will tell you what happened, okay? It's very, very simple. I stepped out of the sunlight of the spirit. I thought that I could run the show better. I stepped away from God, and that's what happened. 
when we step away from God and we step away from the sunlight of the Spirit, um, we revert back to who we were. Within a year, I would be homeless again. And I had a very good job at that time. I was a telephone technician and I made very good money, but alcohol took a hold of me quickly. And for the next 10 years, I would battle alcohol. Now, I did a lot of things during this time. Um, I was in bands. I was known as Mr. Copolis around town. Um, I interviewed people. I was on the radio. I rubbed elbows with big wigs. You know, you, know, it, you know, it's not hard for me to act like I have money when I'm on actually, you know, when I'm actually surfing couches. Um, that's the uh, life of an alcoholic is we get to play whatever part we think is necessary at the time to get what we want. Now, those, bur those bridges would burn and I would get to a point where my drinking was so bad and the, the torment in my brain was so bad that I decided that I was going to pack everything up, move to California and drink myself to death. And that was the plan. And it did not work out that way. I actually ended up working a lot. <laughs> um, and obviously my, my drinking would progress. It would get worse and worse and worse. And I would need more and more and more. And I was there for about two years when I got a friend request from an ex-girlfriend from when I was 19. And you probably know who that is right now. That is my current wife, Shannon. Um, and that, I believe, I believe at that point, God was trying to tell me that it was time, even though I wouldn't realize it for a few more years. And I moved back out to Colorado to be with her and my children and my new stepchildren. Um, and things get foggy for me here. My drinking got so bad that I was never, ever, I was never sober. There was never a time when I was completely sober. It just, it, I drank too much. And I would only keep a certain amount of alcohol in the house because um, if it was there, I would drink it. In uh, blackout or not, I would just keep, continue drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And it got to the point where if I didn't, when I woke up in the morning, if I didn't drink alcohol, um, then I would shake and, and things would get pretty bad. I'd start throwing up. And so I needed alcohol right off the bat too. Well, I wouldn't keep alcohol in the house. So now I had to make a trip, <laughs> you know, and this would become my life for, I don't know what, babe, three, four years. And until I decided that enough was enough. And there were several things that, that happened. Number one, um, when we got married, uh, it was at my mom's house. And I've talked about my mom. She is in recovery. Coming up on, I think she's around 35 years now. And so is her husband. Um, and they met in detox, working at detox. <laughs> they didn't meet while they were, uh, while they were uh, clients at detox. Uh, and they're still together today. Roger, uh, my stepdad, has been a big part of, of my recovery. And the man that um, put up with a lot of my crap during my drinking. So, and, so I went to, 
we went to the wedding, to my wedding, and by the time I got there, I was drunk. Um, and I, I couldn't get anything done, things like, but what it came down to is my grandmother was there and my mom was there. And after that, a lot of things would change. Um, I would start getting a lot of confrontation from my family. Um, at 42, I had a heart attack and, uh, my, you know, a couple of my family members tried an intervention there and I was not going to let that happen. Uh, so I defused that immediately. By, by getting angry, because I was the patient. So if I got angry, I could tell anybody I want you to leave. Um, alcoholics, we love power. Uh, we don't know how to handle power, but we love it. Um, so these were all signs. And the thing is, is I knew that I needed to get sober, and I knew exactly what I needed to do, and I was scared out of my fucking mind. And quite honestly, I didn't care about myself enough to get sober anymore. Um, I wanted to die that way. I thought, you know, maybe I'll just die as a martyr. Maybe somebody will get out of it. The problem with having a head full of AA and a belly full of, of uh, alcohol is the thought process that goes through your mind when you try to quit drinking. Um, and it becomes a living hell. It's like living with somebody else in your head. And they're winning all the time. It's like, it's like watching somebody destroy your life while you're sitting in the background not being able to do anything. And I would sleep downstairs on the couch because I was afraid of what I would do. Um, I didn't love myself at all. And I certainly didn't love myself enough to want help. So some things would change in my life. I would start getting physical with my children. At one point, I locked myself in the garage and turned on the car to try and kill myself. Um, I would put, I would do extreme things for attention. And, you know, that just wasn't the life I wanted to live anymore. So I decided that I would start going to detox. But before then, I would receive a letter from my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother has been gone for a little while now, and I miss her. I love you, Grandma. Um, and I don't share this often, but I'm going to share it today. And this is the note that she wrote me. And yes, it's written. And I don't know what it is about written notes that get me, but they always do. It goes, Dear Dion, I'm writing to you because I can express better in paper than I can orally. Which is true, because my grandma was a mean cuss. <laughs> now you know where I get it from. You're going to think I'm, I'm an interfering old lady, but I'm your grandmother. And I love you and I care about what happens to you. So that gives me the right. <laughs> love it. Dion, will you please, please, please check yourself into a rehab center. And get the help you so desperately need to lick this addiction you have. I'm not going to be here on this earth too much longer 
And my dying, the wish, is to see you sober and living a happy and fruitful life with your wife and children. Well, that's all I'm going to say, so the rest is up to you. I love you, Grandma. Now, that's a very short letter, but it's, to this day, it's still hard for me to read. And I have some good news. When she passed away, I was sober. They tell us when we come into the program that we need to get sober for ourselves. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I didn't get sober for myself. I didn't love myself enough. I got sober for my wife and children. Did it work? Well, I'm here. <laughs> this is the way that I see it. I want my wife and my children in my life. So I did get sober for me. And it doesn't matter what reason you use to get sober. I don't give a fuck. Use it. If it's deep and emotional and makes you change your mind ab about drinking and living a better life, then use it. Because when it comes back down to it, isn't it for you also anyway? You know, I spent a long time learning how to love myself. And... If it wasn't for the people in the rooms and my wife and my children and my mom and the people around me, even the friends that I have now sitting in this room, if I don't have them around, then I tend to fade away. So we need to have people in our lives. So I would spend the next two years going in and out of detox, 27 times I went. I tried to go to rehab, that didn't stick. But I kept going and trying and trying. And one thing that I just would not do is give up. I don't give up. And I wanted this more than I wanted anything else. And it seemed like the harder I tried, it seemed like the further away it went. And I'll tell you why. Because I was fighting it. I wasn't giving up. I wasn't saying, yo, God, it's all yours. And I wasn't letting it all go until I found a sponsor that would sit me down and tell me exactly how much I knew about being sober and what I was doing and to be honest with me. And he was an old timer AA. Well, not old timer at the time, but the great thing about having a sponsor is that they pass on what other people have done. And if you look at my AA book, it is full of underlying and all sorts of things. So I had to I had to actually become accountable for what it is that I was doing. And it wasn't until I became accountable to myself and to God nothing nothing changed for me so so that took a little that took a little bit of time but for me what it came down to was 
doing the work. And and when I say that, that means that means living a life by example that other people would want. Being accountable, being there for people. You know, my life isn't just about helping other people get sober. It's about helping anyone that comes along my path. You know, I have decided to, to run my life through so many different things that now that I'm 50, doing things like being a sponsor or a recovery coach is almost normal for me because I have children. You know, as we get older, we can we can teach alcoholics how to, you know, there's nothing better than watching one of my guys come back and say, I went to the doctor and everything's great. They're just happy they went to the doctor. These are new experiences for us. And that's why we say that we're being reborn because we are. Now, when it comes down to it, I'm not 50, I'm four. <laughs> you know, they say you don't get back to where you were until you hit the amount of time that you have in sobriety that you did drinking. So I got a little ways to go. Well, for me, you know, living living a life that's that's free of alcohol and drugs. You know, I was always scared that I would be bored or you know, because you get older, things don't make you excited like they used to. You know, because you've experienced a lot of them already. So my new life experiences are just being available, doing my steps every single day, and helping God's children. And I find that when I do that and I'm on the right track, that the rest of my life just falls into place. Now, when I got into the program, I was bankrupt. I was emotionally, mentally, and spiritually bankrupt. And I really had to work on my spirituality. And I really liked the way that my sponsor um, introduced me to God. And he said, Dion, this is how you're going to have to work it. Just like you would meet any other new person out there. Put out your hand and just say hi. That's all you have to do. And then say hi every single morning and ask him to keep you sober. And now I call God, God, so that it doesn't confuse anybody because I don't want to have arguments on how, you know, how people see their gods. And but I highly recommend that before you try any other relationship, have one with yourself and have one with God because then you, then you are actually present in that relationship. You're actually there and available. So, right. Well, I am going to wrap this up, but I always end any kind of speaking I do, um, with uh, something from the big book. And this is the keys to the kingdom. AA is not a plan for recovery that can be finished and done with. It is a way of life and the challenge contained in its principles is great enough to keep any human being striving for as long as he lives. We, we do not, cannot outgrow this program, cannot outgrow this plan. As arrested alcoholics, we must have a program for living that allows for limitless expansion. Keeping one foot in front of the others is essential for maintaining our arrestment. 
Others may idle in a retrogressive groove without too much danger, but retrogression can spell death for us. However, this isn't as rough as it sounds, as we become grateful for the necessity that makes us toe the line, and we find that we are compensated for, for our constant effort by the countless dividends we receive. Those are the gifts that we receive from God from other people. I absolutely love it. And this is why we say, stick around till the miracle happens. When somebody comes up to you and says, hey, something you said in a meeting two years ago made me keep coming back. A complete change takes place in our approach to life. Where we used to run from responsibility, we find ourselves accepting it with gratitude that we can successfully shoulder it. Instead of wanting to escape some perplexing problem, we experience the thrill of challenge and the opportunity affords for another application of AA techniques, and we find ourselves tackling it with surprising vigor. The last 15 years of my life have been rich and meaningful. I've had my share of problems, heartaches, and disappointments, because that is a life. But I've also known a great deal of joy and peace. That is the handmaiden, a handmaiden of an inner freedom. I have a wealth of friends, and with my AA friends, an unusual quality of fellowship. For to these people, I am truly related. First through mutual pain and despair, and later through mutual objectives and newfound faith and hope. And as the years go by, working together, sharing our experiences with one another, and also sharing a mutual trust, understanding, and love without strings, without obligation, we acquire relationships that are uniquely priceless. There is no more aloneness with that awful ache so deep in the heart of every alcoholic that nothing before could ever reach it. That ache is gone now and never need to return again. Now there is a sense of belonging, of being wanted and needed and loved. In return for the bottle and a hangover, we have been given the keys to the kingdom. Thank you, everybody, for being here and being a part of. Everybody's story is important. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to me, and uh, let's get you on. In the meantime, thank you, everybody, for being here. I love you all. Peace out, and have a day.